couple of thoughts. It's been many years since I've seen this many people in the congregation other than when we had a joint worship service together with the Cubans. Then there were quite a few, but uh, that's, a, that's a real thrill for me to see you all. It's a great joy and blessing to be with you here this morning for a variety of reasons, not least of which is this is the first time I've been back in the sanctuary for worship since uh, the COVID uh, pandemic hit us. And I have, it just pressed upon me as I came in how much I've missed being here with you. Just in case you don't know, I've not met all of you, uh, but Fritz has already told you, I'm Ted Wilson, the now mostly retired pastor of Zion Church, and in case you are new here or you're watching us uh, uh, online, you should know that Zion was the host church here for Redeemer until Zion and Redeemer merged into one congregation. Uh, legally, that took place, uh, um, gee, a Back in February or March, uh, fish, uh, I guess uh, technically it took place late last year, but today we celebrate that by dedicating this congregation uh, to the service of our Lord. And it is a special day because of that, uh, and we hope that Christ's glory and eternal purposes are fulfilled as we rejoice in what he has done in bringing us together. I uh, need to confess that this is an emotional moment for me. I kind of thought it might be, but now that I'm uh, here, I find it even more so, and that's for a variety of reasons, but not least of which, after nearly 30 years of being a pastor, 24 of which have been here at Zion, this is most likely the last time I will stand before you in the pulpit preaching the Word of God, despite what Fritz just said. And because my emotions are strong, right now, there's a great temptation to make this sermon about me. But a sermon should never be about the preacher. It should always be about Christ. It is Christ who is to be glorified, never the pastor. So, if you'll bear with me, and even though this is essentially my farewell address to you all, please know that my strongest intention is to point to Christ and what he has done and is doing and will do. Let me just state up front uh, that I know through the years of my ministry, if I have done anything of value, if I've ever helped anyone, 
if my preaching has ever drawn anyone closer to the heart of God, if my teaching has helped anyone understand God better, it is only because Christ has done that work through me, not because of what I have done. In fact, if any good whatsoever has come out of my pastorate here, it is despite me, not because of me. So if this morning it seems like I'm pointing to myself, it's only because I'm trying as best I can to show the miracle of God's mercy working through this very unfaithful and flawed sinner. May we pray. Let your steadfast love and mercy, O God, be upon us even as we put our hope in you. Deliver us from the death of selfish ambition and self-centeredness. Keep us from misplaced trust in our own capabilities. Draw us away from pretense and boasting. Lead us to know ourselves truly as we humbly bow before your majesty. We are your children, knowing the benefits of your love. We worship and adore you. In Jesus' name, amen. I call your attention this morning to the New Testament book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4. And I want to share with you verses 1 through 8. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, I'm reading in the ESV. Paul, the apostle, is writing here and says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. Rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth... There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all 
who have loved his appearing. This is the word of God. May his name be praised. As I've thought about this final sermon, this passage has kept coming to the surface of my mind. It comes from what we call the pastoral epistles, which include the New Testament books of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And they're called that because the Apostle Paul writes them directly to uh, Timothy and Titus that they might be instructed not only in how they should conduct their ministries, but also how churches should function. And even though Paul wrote directly to these two men, clearly his intention was that they be read before the whole church for the members' edification and purposes. So through the years, I've always found these pastoral epistles very helpful in my own ministry and administration of the churches that have been entrusted to my care. And I've tried to construct my ministry upon the foundational principles presented here more so than anything else. And because we live in a time when the church is thought by many to be irrelevant, it seems to me that the best thing I can do for you is to remind you through the Apostle Paul's teaching of the only thing that can reverse those thoughts of irrelevancy. In this passage, the Apostle Paul points out that there are four primary concerns that must be the foundation of every pastor's ministry and, by default, at the center of every church. And by the force with which he presents them here, we know that he has given the church the main criteria by which it must select its pastors and to which it must hold its pastors accountable. The first concern. Throughout all of his letters, Paul expresses one overriding, overarching concern which is everything he himself does, everything churches do, and everything pastors do must always glorify Christ and only glorify Christ. Paul teaches on many issues in his letters. But the foundation for all of his teachings and instruction is that Christ, and of course thereby God, be glorified in all things. The magisterial reformers gave us five themes that summarize biblical theology. The first is sola gratia. It's based on Ephesians 2.8. Salvation is an act of pure grace and grace alone on the part of God. Sola gratia. 
saved by grace alone. The second is sola fide. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said the doctrine of justification by faith alone is, quote, the article by which the church stands or falls. The larger Westminster Catechism draws it out even further. In question 70, it says, it asks, what is justification? The answer, justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardons all their sins, accepts and accounts their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them, or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. The third principle is sola Christus. The 16th century Swiss reformer, Ulrich Zwingli, proclaimed, and I'm quoting, Christ is the only way of salvation of all who were or are now or shall be. The only way, Christ alone. The Westminster Confession of Faith affirms that Christ alone is the object of our faith. The principal acts of saving faith are accepting, listen to this, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. The fourth theme is sola scriptura. The Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura affirms that scripture is to be understood as the sole source of divine revelation, the inspired, infallible, final, and authoritative norm of faith and practice. And beloved, this is true for one simple reason. Paul points it out to Timothy in chapter 3 and says it is true because all Scripture is God-breathed. Now those four preceding solas work together to achieve the fifth. You see, the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures to glorify God alone. Christ humbled himself to the point of death and was raised and exalted to the right hand of the Father to the glory of God alone. Grace and mercy are offered to rebellious sinners to the glory of God alone. Justification is by faith alone to the glory of God alone. All of these Point and are in effect for the glory of God alone.
Therefore, says Paul, everything we do must be for the glory of God alone. That one goal is essential and central to all we do as pastors, as the church, as individual Christians, because Christ deserves nothing less than that. The problem is, deep within human nature, there exists the desire for the self to be glorified above all else. And I have to tell you, this is a particular temptation for pastors and the source of most failure in the ministry. It's something I've had to continually battle with myself. And the only victories I've had in this arena are those won by the Holy Spirit working within me. It's because of this great concern, Paul presents to Timothy a critically important rule for pastors he lays it out in chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You see, Paul establishes here the very high bar standard that all pastors should endeavor to. Not only that, it is the very high bar standard the church should hold its pastors to because anything less dishonors Christ. But when you think about it, truthfully, it is the standard to which all Christians should aspire to. That then brings us to Paul's second concern. You see, there are many things a pastor could and even should do. But truthfully, there is only one thing a pastor must do. And the church must insist its pastor do this one thing above all else and do it well. And Paul identifies that one thing in no uncertain terms. In verse 1, he commands Timothy to do this one thing in the presence of God and of Christ. So this command comes with the full gravity of the Holy Trinity watching on. And not only that, but it is presented in light of the certainty of coming judgment. And that one thing any pastor must do, that one thing you all must demand your pastor does, is verse 2. Preach the word. Preach the word. That means the pastor must always and only preach the Word of God as presented to us in the Holy Scriptures, and it must be done with accuracy, fidelity, discipline, and under the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. 
And while this command includes preaching the whole of Scripture, it must always be linked to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no room here for preaching the so-called social gospel. There is no exception for preaching uh, what we call liberal theology or liberation theology or Native American theology or any of the other nonsense that creeps into so many pulpits today. We are not to preach politics or our own opinions. We are not to preach about ourselves. We are to preach the truth of God and nothing else. And you, the members of the church, have a solemn responsibility to demand that we preachers do just that. This is not an arbitrary command of God. There is a critically good reason for it. And that is eternal destinies are at stake. Let me briefly develop that thought. The truth is, we are all under the wrath of God because of sin. And therefore, dead in our sins and trespasses. Paul explains in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Not only that, but the only way we can be reconciled to God and escape that death is through faith in the saving person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, Paul, this time in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. By the way, right there is where the doctrine of sola fide comes from. But that begs the question, how can we have faith? How can I have faith? Well, again, Paul answers that question quite clearly in Romans 10. He writes, for everyone, hear that word everyone, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So you see, this is why right preaching is critically important. Lives are at stake. So with the utmost solemnity, Paul charges Timothy, and by virtue of the holy calling that is given to all authentic pastors, to preach the 
word. And that brings us to the third concern. Paul knew what the people desperately need. He knew what they needed then and he knew what we will need now. And that is to hear the word of God preached. But he also knew that it is not necessarily what people want to hear. What he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It breaks my heart to tell you that I have found that to be very true, even on the local level. Many people come to church and want to be made to feel good. They don't want to be told that they're sinners. Many people want to be entertained by the church worship service. They don't want to hear about their need for a Savior and to change their lives. And many people want to be told that there are certain things they can do to earn God's favor. They don't want to be told it all depends upon faith. But it is also even more tragically true in many of our so-called mainline denominations and increasingly in traditional conservative churches as well. Several years ago, I left the United Church of Christ for this very reason. This church separated its affiliation with the United Church of Christ because of this very reason. Because along the way, they decided that God's word didn't need to be preached. That it wasn't the final authority for faith and life. They decided that there are many paths to God. Friends, that is the pathway to perdition, not to salvation. The sad truth is the carnal heart prefers senseless myths rather than the solid truth. But the pastor must always be courageous enough to declare the truth that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ the Son. And so lastly, we come to the fourth concern Paul has for pastors specifically, but here again, uh, there are implications for all church members. In verse 5, he says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Each one of us, whether we're pastors or not, is under that charge. Fulfill your ministry. When you became a Christian, you were given a ministry, and Paul is declaring to you, fulfill your ministry. 
because of the problem of people turning away from listening to the truth. Paul says they are to remain cool-headed in the face of difficulties. The pastor must be ready to endure hardships. He must do the work of an evangelist, proclaiming the gospel at every opportunity. By the way, Part of the mission you are given, the ministry you are given when you become a Christian, is called the work of evangelism. So in every way, Paul encourages us to fulfill our ministry. One of the reasons... I believe I was compelled to share this passage with you today is because it was Paul's final goodbye to his beloved protege, Timothy, and by association to the church. The letter was probably written in A.D. 67, and tradition holds that Paul was beheaded not long after writing it. And although my own circumstances are quite different from Paul. Verses 6 and 7 and 8 resonate very deeply within me, especially this morning. Verse 6, and the time for my departure has come. While Paul was referring to his physical departure from this earth, still this sentiment seems appropriate for me to share with you as I formally depart pastoral ministry. Christ has brought my ministry at Zion Church to an end, and it's time for me to say to you all goodbye. And I do that with no small degree of sadness. But I also do that with immeasurable gratitude for the many gifts of love, appreciation, help, and grace Zion members have given me through the years and over the past couple of years, Redeemer folks as well. I've, I've felt a deep affinity for you all quite rapidly. And while the journey has not always been easy, I am so very blessed to have been your pastor. Verse 7, I fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. My desperate, uh, my most desperate hope is in the final analysis that can be said of me. But at the same time, my greatest fear is that it can't. I've been evaluating whether or not I have, quote-unquote, fulfilled my ministry to the glory of God. And to be honest, that is a frightening and humbling exercise, which at least for me, brings no small amount of regret. I should have done more. I should have done better. 
I should have been more faithful. I should have been a better husband and father. I should have loved you all more. And as those regrets break my heart, I remember that great theme, sola gratia. And it drives my, me to my knees in humility and gratitude. Verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Because of grace, I know receiving a crown of righteousness is not dependent upon my success, my accomplishments, or for that matter, even my faithfulness. Conversely, neither is it jeopardized by my failures, my ugliness, nor even my sin. So although I feel I've failed on so many levels, I rejoice and am at peace with God because Christ has procured that crown for me and it is laid up in heaven for me despite my sins and my failures and my unfaithfulness. But what I really want you to know is that glorious truth holds true for you also. That's the promise of the gospel given to you in Jesus Christ. So in the privacy of my own thoughts and prayers, I believe I've not been a very good pastor. Yet God has done and is doing miraculous things through this church. So this morning, as we rejoice in what God has done through the years in Zion and now to bring our churches together, and as I bid you farewell with the Apostle Paul, I declare to you from 2 Timothy chapter 1. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our love, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and teacher which is why I suffer as I do but I am not ashamed For I know whom I have believed 
And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So, thank you for allowing me to serve as your pastor. I love you all and I'm so very thankful for each of you. And I leave you now with a reminder that God loves you so much that he exchanged the life of his own son for yours. May he be forever glorified in what you do with that life. Coram Deo. out of practice I have to refer to the bulletin and I have to tell you that uh, um, there's just a slight error in there you may have guessed we're going to celebrate excuse me the sacrament of Holy Communion even though it's not in your bulletin and um, as I fumble around here my question is do we do a song before we do that or do you want me to lead right into it okay so I think probably some of you, maybe perhaps many of you, are familiar with this little glorious gift God has given the church. It's the book called The Valley of Vision, and it is a collection of prayers preserved from the Puritan church many years ago. Um, I have told many people through the years, this is the second most valuable book in my library out of thousands, the first, of course, being the Bible, but I highly commend it to you if you don't have a copy. Use it as a devotional guide, and I promise you, you will be immeasurably blessed by it. And all of that is by way of saying our communion prayer this morning, I've taken directly from this marvelous book, so let us pray. God of all good, I bless thee for the means of grace. Teach me to see in them thy loving purposes and the joy and strength of my soul. Thou hast prepared for me a feast, and though I am unworthy to sit down as guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate, but must come to thee in love. By that, thy spirit enliven my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior. 
while I gaze under the emblems of my Savior's death. May I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself as an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, and endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may I rightly grasp the breadth and length of this design. Draw near, obey. Extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink, testify before all men that I do for myself gladly in faith, reverence, and love receive my Lord to be my life, strength, nourishment, joy, delight. In the supper, I remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may thy indwelling spirit invigorate my soul until that day when I hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Amen.